Uh, Turning your Bibles to John chapter 19. Uh, This morning we will look at uh, one verse. uh, John 19. If you're um, you're using one of the chair Bible things, you'll find it on page 906. Um. We, uh, because of the length of some of the passages we've been reading lately, we've gotten away from this practice. However, uh, I will remind you since this morning, we'll just read a, uh, three whole verses. Uh, let's stand as we read God's word together. John 19, uh, we'll begin in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Use this, your word, Uh, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For we ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to ask one question this morning, and it's the question that's uh, printed as the sermon title in your bulletin. But here's the catch. This is where grammar gets fun. Because it really boils down to which syllable is going to get the emphasis, right? Because you can write the question, what is it? And, and you can ask it any number of ways. There was a time years ago, Lucas might have been in like middle school, I can't remember. But there were several times when Lucas and I played with how sentences, the meaning of sentences would change just by which word got emphasized in the sentence. For example, if you were to ask, what is it, and put the emphasis on the is, then you're looking at, I don't know, you're watching a light go across the sky, and you want to know, what is it? Or you're holding some blob, you found some strange creature on the beach, and you don't know what it is, so you ask, what is it? The emphasis is on the is. If you wanted to correct somebody and they thought you asked where or they thought you asked when and you said, you said, no, 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 what is it? I didn't ask where is it. I didn't ask when is it. I didn't ask why is it. What is it? And so you had to put the emphasis on the first word. If for some strange reason you wanted to tell people that the word what is the cool word to say these days, right? It's keeping up with the kids, right? So now, all of a sudden, what is the cool word to say? You actually would have to emphasize the first and like, what is it? But then that's a statement and not a question. And why on earth would you ever want to do that? My point is, the emphasis matters. The emphasis of our question this morning is on the last word. What is it? Because if you notice in our sermon text this morning, Jesus, as he's dying on the cross with his last breath, and actually if you, 
if you do a study of those seven last words of Jesus on the cross, this actually is the next to last thing he says. He says, it is finished. And so what we want to know is, what is finished? If Jesus says, it is finished, we have to ask, well, what is it? Because here's the thing, we know, we already know this. We emphasize things like, with their dying breath, they asked, and we will go to any length necessary to fulfill that request. When a loved one is dying and we know it and they know it and the last thing on their mind, the last thing out of their mouth, we will forever say, with their dying breath, they wanted me to blank. They wanted some particular request. And we will make sure we carry that out for them. Why? Because we know we know that when people are breathing their last, they're not wasting that breath. They're not wasting those words. When you don't have many breaths left to take, you use them for things that you know to be important. Which means really you and I should probably spend a lifetime understanding, seeking to understand what is it. If Jesus with His last breaths can say it is finished, we probably ought to go to great lengths, greater lengths than we would give to the loved one who wants some request at their funeral or whatever the case may be to find out what it is. And here's the thing. I think we could give it a lifetime. I don't, I don't have any intent of answering that question, what is it, to its fullest this morning. I don't have that kind of time or energy. You don't want to sit here and listen to me that long. And the reality is, I think we could spend ages pursuing an understanding of that one sentence and maybe never actually get there. And so I don't anticipate answering it completely. I just anticipate answering it adequately this morning. So first, what is it? Well, the word it is finished. Okay, it's three in English. It's one in Greek and it's one in Aramaic, which would have been the spoken language, the spoken sort of Hebrew language. Uh, in Greek, it's the, the Greek word tetelestai, which you can know that if you want to. But it's a, a past perfect verb. It means it's done. It's the event, the act, the thing you're talking about is all wrapped and neatly tied with a bow and it's complete. But it has in it the Greek word telos, which sort of has purpose, intent, aim. In other words... Part of what Jesus is saying is, it is finished. He's saying the purpose for which I have been sent is fully and finally and completely accomplished. I've done everything for which I have come to live on earth. 
Okay, well then you go, well now you've got a new question, right? Because now that you know that it, it, it bears some sense of purpose, well, what was his purpose? What was his goal? Well, there's a phrase that runs throughout the Gospels. And, and in fact, it was in our passage. Um, notice verse 28. In the ESV, at least, it's in parenthesis. Parentheses. Right? To fulfill the scripture. As you read through the Gospels, you will find places where over and over again, this sort of side comment, such and such happened, or so and so did this thing, or somebody said that thing, to fulfill the scripture. Look down in verse 36. These things took place, doesn't matter what the things are, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Turn with me back to John 17. By the way, you will want to keep your Bible handy. You're going to need it several more times uh, this morning. John 17. John 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples, the ones immediately around him, but he's also praying for you and for me. Notice verse 12. Uh, In verse 12. Uh, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Then there's this exception, right? Except the son of destruction. That's Judas Iscariot. And then there's this phrase. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, we're not going to wander down that road too far, except to sort of make this observation. If that last phrase wasn't there, you would be worried. Hold on a second. You mean to tell me Jesus is able to keep 11, but not 12. I've guarded them. I have kept them except for this one father, the son of destruction. And if it didn't say to fulfill scripture, you would think, wait, you mean to tell me Jesus is just strong enough to keep 11 people, but not 12 people. How many in this room miss out? How many of us in this room are like now, I might be number 12 or 19 or 40 or whatever the number may be. And part of the point is that the reason Jesus didn't or couldn't keep that one is so that scripture might be fulfilled. See, part of the point is Jesus came to do what the Old Testament has been talking about since the very beginning. Jesus has come to fulfill everything that the Old Testament expected the Messiah to do and to be. Of course, for us, we call it the Old Testament. For them, they just called it the Bible, right? They didn't have Paul's letters yet. Jesus, as he's praying in John 17, he doesn't have Romans. He doesn't have Acts. He doesn't have Luke. And for that matter, he doesn't even have John because he's participating in the thing that John's going to write later on. They just called it the Bible. But the point is, part of Jesus's purpose is to do and fulfill Everything that the Old Testament wanted and needed the Messiah to be. This has implications for us, by the way. 
This has implications for how we read the Bible. Like, we read the Old Testament and go, yeah, I got no idea. This is about Israel. This is about some other people. This is about some ages, you know, some time ages ago. It doesn't really have anything to do. Actually, it has everything to do with you. Because the Old Testament is about the Messiah. The Old Testament is, is anticipating the fulfillment of, well, God's promise to redeem his people. And so the Old Testament is about Jesus. Not every Old Testament is about the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus. But the Old Testament anticipates the redemption of God's people through the Messiah. And in fact, turn with me to, to Genesis 3. I told you you're going, to, you're going to have to turn around a little bit. Jesus, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15 actually gives us the theme of the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15 tells us what the whole rest of the Bible is about. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you. This is God speaking to the serpent and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The whole rest of the Bible is that contest. It's that battle. It's waiting for the seed of the woman who will finally and fully bruise the head or crush the head of the seed of the serpent. I hesitate to use the illustration, but it works in my head. Let me hope it works in yours. Uh, I trust you've seen at least one of the 9,000 Rocky movies there are out there in the world. There's always this scene in Rocky. He's just battered and bruised and his eyes are swollen and he can't half see and he's blood on his mouth and he's kind of laid back in the corner waiting for the next round. And I mean, you're literally watching. And the whole point of the movie is of that scene, at least, is to make you think this guy is toast, right? All he has to do is go out and the fight, basically his opponent, all he has to do is blow on him. He's just going to fall over. There's no way on earth Rocky can come back from all of this getting beat up in this boxing match. And then he does. The point is, of that scene, is to make you think it's hopeless and he doesn't stand a chance. Think about Christ hanging on the cross in relation to the promise of Genesis 3.15. See, at that moment, Jesus is breathing his last breath and the seed of the serpent goes, Ha! I just won. Victory is mine. God, you failed. He's not stepping on my head. He's not bruising my head. Look, he's dying on a cross. There's no way he can come back from this. I just won. That's part of the image because it's in that moment when to you and me, it looks entirely unlikely for Jesus to win that he basically goes, and I don't know, 
how much energy did he have? How much strength did he have? How victorious could how victoriously could he say it is finished? But at the very least, it is victorious. And and I would be tempted to say it, or at least if you were going to portray it in a movie, I've never seen any of the, those those ones. But th- there's got to be a smirk on his face, right? Because the smirk says, you think you won. It is finished. The purpose for which I have been sent is finally and completely accomplished. The head of the serpent has been stomped on by the seed of the woman. The point where Jesus looks most helpless, most lost, most to have failed in his work is the point when he can say, it's finished. I've done it all. The death of death, I mean, the death of Jesus means the death of death itself. And all that the Old Testament has been longing for has been accomplished. Jesus' purpose, his mission uh, that has been accomplished is in part to fulfill all that the Old Testament says about him. But there's, a, there's another, uh, another phrase, I guess, that we read throughout the, the Gospels um, that tell us that Jesus came for a purpose. Turn to John chapter 6. John 6, verse 38. Again, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Back in John 4, he says, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me. Do you see part of his purpose, part of his aim, part of his goal is to accomplish what the father sent him for? You see, there's this, there's this eternal agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they will accomplish and apply salvation. The Father determined before the foundation of the world, go read Ephesians 1, to have to Himself a people, to redeem His people, to save them from sin. And part of that agreement, if you will, within the Godhead, within the Trinity, is for the Father to say, this is how we're going to do this. And the Son says, I will accomplish that. And the Spirit says, I will apply that to your people in time and space. I will be at work in and through and by your word and, and the gospel to bring people to saving faith. And so at some level, as Jesus hangs on the cross and says it is finished, not only does he mean all that the Old Testament has anticipated, but in some ways he looks to the Father and says, I have done what you sent me to do. Everything that I was supposed to do to accomplish salvation has been done. Now, Father, Spirit, it's time to go and apply that redemption to his people. What is it? Well, it is accomplishing the purpose for which he is sent. But there's a, a second, um, a second thing that it is. 
uh, because we we find um, again this one word that Jesus speaks to tell us die. It's a banking term. It's a finance term. It was a stamp used to say the debt that this person owed has been paid in full. And so the idea of it is finished or it has been accomplished in banking usage was the debt has been satisfied. And so banks would use it as a stamp. We can no longer have a claim on this person because everything that they owed has been paid. Which means that Jesus is paying a debt on that cross. Jesus is satisfying the demands of a debt. Well, now you've got to find out, well, what debt? What debt is there to pay? Who owes who, whom? Who owes whom what? That's good. Now talk about grammar being fun. You can figure that one out. Who owes... Well, the reality is we owe to God perfect, perpetual obedience. Adam failed in the garden. We fail. We confessed earlier. We, we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. We fail to give to God the obedience that He demands. You know, it's funny. We... Um, and, and sometimes I wonder how much this even creeps into our own minds, into the church itself. But there are plenty of people out there in the world who are just sure and convinced that God grades on a curve. That as long as I do enough, as long as I do more good than bad, then, you know, he's going to see that and it'll, it'll sort of tilt the scales in my favor. Or... As long as I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right? As long as my grade is the highest grade in the class, even if I make a 70 and everybody else in the class makes a 40, if my teacher grades on a curve, then I'm going to get a better grade. Like we're convinced that God grades on a curve. Here's the catch. The teacher that does grade on a curve, that teacher still is the one doing the grading. Which means that teacher is the one determining what that curve would look like, right? It's still the teacher who says, well, I've got the answer key. I've got the rights and the wrongs. I'm the one who's going to put the marks on your paper. I'm going to determine what's right. And so you can hope for a curve and the teacher is still the one in all power and authority in the classroom. To apply that to God... We think as long as my good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. Okay, who decides what is good stuff and what is bad stuff? See, we want to walk in and go, well, I get to decide what's good stuff, right? I, I helped the old lady across the street. I helped my sibling with their homework. I didn't cheat on my taxes. Or I haven't yet cheated on my taxes. You're running out of time. I haven't actually murdered my parents. I haven't actually murdered my kids. I, right? I mean, we sort of come up with like, what are the good things? And, and we assume that, that we get to decide what is good. Well, but here's the catch. God has already said the good things are perfect, perpetual obedience. 
You owe him complete and total obedience 100% of the time in every way possible. And a 99 is an F. The reality is we don't make a 99, right? We, we know that we don't, we're not even that close, right? Remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, just start there, right? You always love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But you always love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, you've never lashed out in anger at someone or treated them with hatred. You've never talked about anyone behind their back in hopes of sort of making people in your group dislike those people or think less of them. You've never passed on false information. You've never looked at the stuff your neighbor has and wanted it for your own. You've always honored God's name perfectly. You've always perfectly kept the Sabbath. I haven't even done all ten of them yet. And with each one, we go, no, I haven't done that. Well, wait, no, I haven't done that either. The point is, we owe God perfect, perpetual obedience. But we have failed. We haven't paid what we owe. Is Jesus guilty? Is Jesus hanging on the cross because of sins he committed? Well, no. But kind of. Did he personally commit them? No. But are your sins being counted to him? It's because of our cosmic treason that Jesus hangs on the cross. Did he fail to keep God's moral law? No, it was his food to do the will of him who sent him. Did he disobey somewhere along the way so that he's hanging on the cross? He's dying just a death that any sinner deserves? No, not at all. He was perfectly obedient from beginning to end. But on the cross, he's being counted as guilty. He's being numbered among the disobedient, though he himself was not. So when Jesus can say it is finished, what is it? Well, He's saying, I have, I've kept the law. I have been perfectly, perpetual, perpetually obedient, though they have not. He's keeping the law. He has kept the law in our place. But what does your cosmic treason deserve? What does our guilt and shame deserve? Is it not death? Right? The wages of sin is death. Our sin and our guilt mean that we deserve punishment. And the only right punishment for infinite sin against an infinite God is death itself. And yet, Jesus can say it is finished. They should be the ones hanging here. They should be the ones suffering and bleeding and dying for their guilt, for their sin, for their disobedience. 
but I'm shedding my blood so they don't have to. I'm sacrificing my life so they don't have to. On the cross, Jesus suffers and dies in our place. He was dying for sin he didn't commit. Suffering the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to endure it. And as he breathed his last, he was bearing that punishment for us. Jesus had done everything that was required to secure our salvation. Now, maybe you're thinking, hold on a second, Jeff. This is, this is Easter, right? We're supposed to be talking about the resurrection, not the crucifixion, right? This, we're doing it wrong. You're, you're messing up. And the reality is, perhaps you're thinking, well, hold on a second. You mean to tell me that we really don't need the resurrection? We don't really need Easter? That's not what I'm saying at all. Because the reality is the resurrection makes the sacrifice, makes the crucifixion acceptable. It proves that death died when Jesus died. Because Jesus rose again and said, look, even death itself can't hold me. But you know places in the Bible where the Bible uses past tense verbs for future events. For that matter, many of you, if I were to ask you what is Romans 8.28, you would know, right, things work together for good for those who love. Or God. Verse 30 talks about those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. Glorified is our future. That's not our past. But the Bible can talk about it as so certain, though it's in our future, it's so certain and so undeniable and unpreventable that you can talk about it in past tense. In other words, at some level, as Jesus gave up his life on the cross, there was no more opportunity for his resurrection to fail. It, it was guaranteed he would rise again. Because if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a moment. There was a chance that the plan would fail. Remember? Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me. I'm about to go to the cross and I'm going to face your unmitigated, unmediated wrath and justice for sin I didn't commit. If there's another way, if there's another cup I could drink besides the cup of your wrath, I would do it. But as Jesus dies, there's no more chance for that to fail. But do you remember Jesus' next sentence in the garden? See, Adam in the Garden of Eden said, not your will, but mine be done. When we sin, we say, not your will, but mine be done. Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. And he could say, as he died on the cross, it is all finished Here's the implication for us. 
every other religion in the world says, do more. Try harder. Just a little bit more. You've done a lot and it's pretty good, but it's still not quite enough. Every other religion in the world says, you have to keep doing better, giving up a little bit more, being a little less selfless, being, being a little less selfish. Sorry. Right? Every other religion in the world puts the onus on you. The Bible just put all the responsibility on Jesus. Jesus just put all the responsibility on Jesus. If we are using the language of, I just need to, we don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel says, Jesus has done it all. There's nothing more for me to do. There's nothing I could possibly add to his complete and total, perfect, perpetual obedience. And to do so in my place. And that's Easter. The resurrection says Christ has conquered everything that sin can throw at you. Every possible punishment that the fallen world has, the last of which, the greatest of which, is death itself. And Jesus laughs and says, yeah, I've beaten that too. I've defeated that too. Believer, that's your hope. Both in this life and in the one to come. But if you're not trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation, you can try harder and do more and pretend to do better all you want. And you will absolutely get nowhere. Look to Christ. Because He looks at you and says, It's finished. I've done it all. I've done it all for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to suffer the wrath and curse of the Father in our place, despite the fact that you were perfectly, perpetually obedient in our place. Uh, we thank you that you have accomplished the work that for which you were sent that you have fulfilled all that the Old Testament expects in a Messiah. Would you grant us the grace to live out of that truth, out of that reality, to live as a response, to live and to worship and to love and to serve as a response to the fact that you have done it all. And there's nothing more we can add, nothing more we can do to make it better. And we thank you for Easter. We thank you for defeating death itself so that we too might learn to laugh in the face of death because we know it cannot hold us even as it could not hold you. Would you grant us the grace to live out of that reality for your honor and your glory? We ask it. Amen.